Well, I have the pleasure of introducing our first speaker, Dr. John Koo. He has spoken um, for the SDPA several times. He is the director of UCSF Psoriasis Treatment Center, professor and vice chair of the Department of Dermatology, and he is definitely a friend of the SDPA. He's been here many times and has spoken on many different subjects, um, and this particular talk that he gives is really one of my favorites, and he is going to be talking to us about psychodermatology, and he will do an excellent job. Please welcome Dr. Q. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone for having me here again. Uh, sometimes I talk on psoriasis, sometimes I talk on psychodermatology, but it's, it's always my pleasure to be with you. Um, I'm going to be uh, talking about a subject, psychodermatology, which is not always covered much you know, in uh, either training or even at AAD. You can face psychodermatological issue practically any time with any patient in your practice. You know, so it's, it's nice to know how to handle these patients. And also, I should mention that um, I have no conflict of interest whatsoever. <laughs> Um, I, I am board certified in psychiatry and I was board certified in psychiatry first before I became board certified in dermatology. But then I realized that dermatology is one area the psychopharmacological industry forgot. And so if you were to open a typical journal of internal medicine, family practice, pediatrics. You know, you see all these ads about in the old times, you know, Prozac, Paxil, now Celexa, you know, Ativan. You can go to, to the last half century of Journal of American Academy of Dermatology or Archives of Dermatology or any dermatology journal and you will not find a single ad on any psychotropic medications. Now, what is the consequence of this? Well, the consequence of this is to this date, dermatology and dermatology practitioners are uniquely afraid to use any kind of psychotropic medications. You know, this is where you know, lack of pharmaceutical education actually hurt. Um, you know, whereas internal medicine, you know, family practice, pediatricians, you know, they actually prescribe, prescribe the bulk of psychotropic medications. Once in a blue moon, it happens that psychiatrists prescribe more than they. And then there's a big celebration in psychiatric, you know, times, you know, <laughs> that, that we finally prescribe more than non-psychiatrists. And then that disappears for another 10 years. <laughs> You know, so using these medications is not anything strange in medicine, even though it's kind of a um, little bit uh, anxiety-provoking dermatology just because we're not so familiar with it. Um, this, but the, the other thing is that a lot of the psychoderm patients, uh, whether they complain about stress or whether they have delusions or parasitosis, they don't want to go see a psychiatrist. They want to come see you. You know, so often, you know, especially people who are more severely affected, like people with delusion, if you don't extend your hand a little bit gutsy and treat them, they could be living in a ruined life for the rest of their life because they might never go see a psychiatrist anyway. Even people who just have stress, they rather get some advice from you than go see a psychiatrist. Part of it has to do with, you know, the stigma or having to go, you know, seeing a mental health professional when you apply for a job. You know, you have to say, have you been seen by a mental health professional? They don't want to say yes. And part of it, you know, might be insurance. You know, insurance still discriminate against, you know, giving less benefit for people who, you know, go see a mental health professional. But, you know, but it would be great if you can address some of these people and also it would be a joy if you get used to working in this term because most of the psychodermatology cases we see are so much more healthier than chronic psych patients. You know, first of all, most of these people have very good pre-morbid uh, adjustment level. They experience anxiety, depression, stress, in rare case, delusion. Um, and they're essentially psychotropic virgins, meaning whatever you give them, they respond very well. 
you know, uh, in, in, on average. So oftentimes it's not the issue of would they respond to the medicine, it's, it's the issue of um, are you willing to talk about it and are they willing to take the medicine if you offer them. So with that, let me go ahead and um, get started. Now this is a cartoon. Uh, one of my uh, UCSF dermatology faculty colleague gave it to me. And unfortunately the caption got cut off. But there's somebody who's about to jump off a building and a policeman with a dermatologist. <laughs> and the caption said, we could, we could not find a psychiatrist. Um, do you have anything to talk about your skin? <laughs> and then later on I found this came from Playboy. <laughs> um, well, that's the kind of situation we find ourselves, just because patients might not want to go see a mental health professional. And psychodermatology is not just delusional patients. If you are psychologically sensitive, um, I don't mean to start out this, you know, by making sexist comment, but I see a lot of ladies here, and that's very encouraging. <laughs> because empathy, you know, is something that is very important when you de deal with this. Probably, you know, uh, and I hope there isn't too many, you know, macho cavemen <laughs> around, because in emotional sensitivity, especially empathy, you know, uh, is needed in almost any kind of um, interaction. Um, skin disease that are, you know, either started out or worsened by stress, I mean, that's most of medical dermatology. Everything from psoriasis to eczema to acne to hives, um, psychological impact of disfigurement. When people have conditions like alopecia areata, vitiligo, the main morbidity is psychosocial rather than physical. Then people with neurotic excoriations, delusions of parastosis, even pruritus. There are many people who have chronic itching of unknown ideology and how devastated they are, how compromising their lives often has to do with are they happy people, relaxed people, are they unhappy people, frustrated people, depressed people. Because there are so many different um, um, conditions which could be potentially psychodermatologic, if they are more serious, it's nice to know how to separate apples from oranges. Uh, there are two ways to do this. One is general categories of psychodermatological conditions. The other is by the nature of the underlying psychopathology. In terms of general categories, there are psychophysiological disorders. These are conditions that are often made worse by stress. And that's, once again, most of the bread and butter dermatology that involves inflammation. Inflammation is often worsened by emotional stress. If you ask typically, you know, a group of psoriasis patients, what two factors make your psoriasis really bad? Answer is consistent. Emotional stress and winter weather. Now I know that uh, you have heard a lot of biologic lectures and some of which I give myself where we talk about you know, all these antigens and so forth. But what kind of antigen is winter weather? <laughs> what kind of antigen is emotional stress? You know, so you know, don't get misled by you know um, the the fashion in science. What's still more important might be emotional. Primary psychiatric disorders. These are the delusions of parastosis, trichotillomania, onychophagia, where people bite the nails. Um, factitious dermatitis, neurotic excoriations. These are people who have no nothing wrong with their skin, hair, or nail, but they. Uh, have something wrong with their mind <laughs> and everything you see is self-induced. Now, secondary psychiatric disorders, these are people who are devastated by disfigurement, vitiligo, alopecia areata, you know, big mycosis fungosis on the face, you know, anything ugly, you know, psoriasis, cutaneous sensory disorder. Uh, it's also called um, cutaneous dysesthesia. So, um, sometimes people have sens sensory disorders, burning sensation, stinging sensation. There's nothing to see on the skin. And the million dollar workup systemically is negative. If you, you know, if you give them the usual kind of topical steroid, antihistamines, doesn't do a thing. What works better? 
might be tricyclic antidepressant in low dose like Elavil, amitriptyline, desipramine, doxepin. You know, so these are the general categories of uh, major psych, you know, uh, psychopathology, uh, I mean, psychodermatological conditions. But if you are psychologically sensitive, as I mentioned, almost any kind of interaction has psychological dimension. For example, many of you know that I'm into psoriasis. If I see a patient with psoriasis and I say, oh, you got psoriasis, I'm going to write, because it's localized, Dovonex. Here, Dovonex. Bye. <laughs> and then somebody else come in, and then they have more psoriasis. I say, hmm, it's kind of more than just localized. Now I'm going to write psoriatin, which is, of course, acetretin, the vitamin A type of medication. Bye. Now, I did all the right things. I made the right diagnosis. I gave the you know, appropriate medication. I said bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, most likely, that interaction is wasted. Most likely, it's going to fail because there's something I did not do. One, I did not tell the patient that Dovonex or Soratin takes a long time to kick in. And we live in America. You know, this is the nation that invented fast food. If we don't say anything, the patient think, oh wow, this is fantastic, new medication. I'm gonna get better in two, three weeks. Guess what? When that doesn't happen, patients say, oh, this doesn't work for me. The thing that I didn't do can be called expectation management. You know, if I use superborn topical steroid or if I use psychosporin, I don't have to do that. But for other medications that takes more time, if I had empathy, you know, of course I know that it works slow. Patient doesn't. You know, maybe I have to tell them. <laughs> you know, the same thing with acne. If you just give antibiotics, say nothing, in two, three weeks they give up. Because they, don't, they didn't know that it takes a lot longer than that for antibiotics to work for acne. And also, putting topical medicine in a chronic disease that is like lifelong, it's pain in the butt. Excuse my language. You know, but, but, but the thing is, so sometimes we have to be a cheerleader. You, know, you have to say, you can do it, you can do it, just like a Nike commercial. You know, that's also psychodermatology. And this is what I mean by, if you are psychologically in tune, many aspects of dermatological practice is psychodermatology. So let me go beyond that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I almost forgot the other side. So there are four underlying psychopathologies that are most um, relevant. Anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, psychosis. Why is it important? One, because if you ever choose to treat them, in dermatological setting, we don't have you know, time for psychotherapy. <laughs> we don't have training for group dynamics. <laughs> we could give medications, but which medications you might try first? It's usually dictated by what kind of problem they have. Is it anxiety? Then it's anti-anxiety agent. If it's depression, antidepressant. Is it obsessive compulsive disorder? Anti-obsessive compulsive disorder agent. Psychosis? antipsychotic, like Pimozide or ORAP that you might have heard about. Um, also, how you're going to interact with the patient is entirely depend on which underlying condition they have. If it's psychosis, like delusion surprisedosis, it's good to be careful. You know, don't just go up to the patient and say, you know, I think you're crazy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they cannot hear that. They'll be pissed. <laughs> you know, so, so you have to be a little more careful. You say, well, you know, um, and then patients say, what do I have? I feel, you know, I have all these insect coming, things flying out. You know, bugs, bugs. You know, I say, hmm, <laughs> uh, you have formication. <laughs> What's, and I show them in the back of you know, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, we have this you know, encounter form that lists all the diagnosis. So here, formication, CPT code, da 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 da. Formication, how come it's spelled with M? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it means crawling and biting sensation. And I said, that's what you have. Now, I have to be careful not to put delusion in my note because remember, the patients can actually access their medical record. 
and you know, so I put formication, formication, but then I put you know uh, verbatim. You know, this patient says, you know, these there are insects coming out of the skin. You know, and then you know, this is you know how the patients say it date and mate and reproduce and life cycle. <laughs> so anybody who's reading it know that this is a delusional patient, but it's good if you don't say that. On the other hand, the other people, people who have anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, if you talk talk to them, you can talk to them straight, and they appreciate it because they're not like the delusional patient who you really have to go through the back door to communicate. You know, so starting with um, anxiety, depression, delusion. Um, by the way, obsessive compulsive disorder is co officially considered a subtype of anxiety disorder. And the reason is when, when people are picking on their acne, or, you know, they feel fine. When they try not to pick on their acne, then they become anxious. They feel ill at ease. And then after a while, you know, they, you know, compulsive urge overwhelm them and they start picking. And therefore, officially, the obsessive compulsive disorder is under the category of anxiety disorder. Um, anxiety, tension, agitation, stress, can relax, and the physiological manifestation, uh, muscle tension, sweating, shortness of breath, palpitation, go to bathroom often. I'm sure most of us have experienced this one time or the other. <laughs> it's a good thing about psych terminology, we know what that means. <laughs> it's not like talking about periodizers like you know it is chronic or something. Um, you know, people with um, um, atopic dermatitis, oftentimes stress make it worse, dyshydrotic eczema, namula eczema, rosacea, acne, especially adult acne, urticaria, psoriasis, neurodermatitis, which is like a simplex chronicus, pruritus ani. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Many conditions, people say stress make it worse. In fact, um, Dr. Grismia, many decades ago, he surveyed more than 4,000 patients to see uh, to find out that what percent of patients, for, for what percent of patients is the stress important? Now for hyperhidrosis, everybody says stress was important. Psoriasis, about half the people said stress was important. So there are stress responders and non-stress responders. And then there are, of course, people who have nothing to do with stress. Skin cancer, keratosis. Yeah. I think you know, the investigators were obsessive compulsive. <laughs> Either that or these were controls, I guess. <laughs> um, this is UCSF Psoriasis Treatment Center. Not the whole thing, but just this building over here. And this is where I work. And we do Gekkerman, the all-day, everyday black tar treatment. So if you have anybody with eczema or psoriasis who is you know, totally miserable and nothing works, send them to San Francisco. I'd be happy to put them in black tar. Still the most effective treatment for both eczema and psoriasis and prigonodularis. But we also use relaxation as part of the um, treatment regimen. You know, anything from progressive relaxation where people contract and relax muscles group one step at a time, to meditation, to imagery. I mean, these people, I think they're all imagining they're in Hawaii or something like that. Very helpful because some of the worst psoriasis patients uh, seems to also have, uh, many of them seems to have type A kind of personality, more stress prone, anxiety prone, and many studies have shown that controlling up here for people who are very stress driven uh, also help their psoriasis. This is a case of hyperhidrosis. Uh, was referred to me because the referring dermatologist tried everything, you know, from you know, Zirac AC, Drysol, whatnot, didn't work. And the reason it didn't work was because he was having hyperhidrosis whenever he was having acute anxiety attack. So if you didn't help the anxiety attack, you could help the hyperhidrosis. So I put him on uh, Alprazolam, which is, you know, Xanax, you know, cheap, generic, and he was greatly improved right away. But, you know, Alprazolam, just like Ativan, only works, you know, certain hours. So he was getting, you know, little breakthrough sweating attacks. So then I add just a touch of doxepin. Now, doxepin is a tricyclic antidepressant that has significant anti-anxiety effect in low dose. Doxepin is antidepressant at 100 milligrams a day, but at 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, 30 milligrams, or even less than 10 milligrams, it calms people down. 
It's been compared you know, head-to-head against Librium and Valium, and it works just as good without being addictive, provided that you titrate the dose very carefully. Doxepin is a very useful medication because it can be used as an anti-anxiety agent, anti-itch agent, antidepressant, and then in low-dose analgesic for people with chronic pain syndrome. So with about 25 of doxepin and very little prazolan or Xanax, his anxiety was totally under control, and eventually he was able to get off both of the medications. Now, doxepin, being a tricyclic antidepressant, also have anticholinergic effect, which means it helps to dry sweating, you know, inhibit sweating. You know, so um, you know, uh, even though I might be a little bit ahead of myself, doxepin, as you know, comes as 10 milligrams, and you can start with 10 milligrams at bedtime because sedation is the main side effect. As I said, antidepressant dosage is 100 milligrams. That's like, wow. Most dermatologists don't use that. Um, but oftentimes, you know, it is, you know, uh, it also comes in 10 milligram per cc doxepin liquid concentrate, and that is also useful uh, for people who cannot take 10 milligrams because they get zonked. But if 10 milligrams doesn't do anything, then you have to bravely and slowly titrate up 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 40. Tricyclic antidepressant has a long half-life. That means once you control you know, either sweating or anxiety or itching or hives with doxepin, you usually have 24-hour control. You know, but individual requirement for dosage is tremendously variable. Um, this is a patient with psoriasis who responded to Gekamen, uh, the black tie treatment. But, but then he said, you know, I get this once a year, and I can tell you exactly to the date when this happens. And I said, how can you tell? Well, he's a bus driver in San Francisco. And Muni, you know, go through um, all over San Francisco, but including not so nice part of San Francisco like Tenderloin. And in, 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 in the bus go like three in the morning. And he said he had a bad experience. Um, you know, somebody who's drunk could get on, doesn't pay the bus fare. And he said, can, you know, hi, you know, can you pay the bus fare? Then they come to like within inch of my face and scream and shout and you know, very obnoxious. When that happens, we're supposed to stop the bus and call for help. He did that, nobody came. You know, so, so after that, he got so nervous. Every time he has to do those kind of routes, his rises breaks up. So, so I told him, okay, I don't want to give you alprazolam or doxepin because sedation is a problem. <laughs> so I gave him Buspa. Buspiron. Buspa, I'm sure you heard the name. You know, it's antidepressant that is probably, I'm sorry, anti-anxiety agent. Not addictive, not sedating. The side effect is so minimal. <laughs> it's probably one of the most comfortable psychotropic medication to start. The dosage range from five milligram three times a day to 10 milligram four times a day. They even have a DB tab. It's like a cookie. You can break it any way you want and adjust the dose. You have to take it in an official psychiatric terminology regularly, like three times a day or four times a day. And you have to take it about a month before the effect kicks in which is too slow for psych patients, but perfectly fine for derm patients because they're appreciative of anything you do. And it's, it's almost without side effect. Now, that might be a little bit of exaggeration, but no serious side effect that I know of. You know, so I started him on Buspiron. I told him rare people feel you know, funny or lousy. Of course he didn't. And then you, know, you have to take it regularly a month before this, you know, um, you know, this uh, undesirable rotation, and he started doing that. Lo and behold, that was 20 years ago. I've been doing psoriasis for more than 20 years. And ever since then, he never had this outbreak. He just take that spa a month before his yucky rotation. Um, and then he retired, and then his psoriasis got better. So, Buspiron, um, Buspa, um, you know, um, and that's one of the, once again, safest agent to try. The other agent that is good for anxiety, Paxil, paroxetine. Now, Paxil is widely used, you know, one of the most often used medication in the United States. It has three FDA indications, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you feel nervous about, oh no, I, I don't know if I feel comfortable using psychotropic medication, and then if you look at the book and say, wow, they list 50 different antidepressants, don't worry. Just learn one. <laughs> 
And my personal bias is, if you're not going to use it for long term, because most psychoderm patients don't need a long term treatment, um, Paxil is actually nice because of the, you know, one, because it has triple indication. If you want to use it to calm anxiety and not worry about addiction with benzodiazepine, it's like 10 or 20 is plenty, 10, 10 or 20 milligrams per day. If you want to treat depression, 20 milligrams a day is usually adequate because most people that you see in derm setting with depression are not like treatment resistant, horrible, horrible depression, but one of those you know, mild, you know, relatively easy to treat case of depression. If you want to treat obsessive compulsive disorder, 20 is usually not adequate. You might have to go to 40, 60, 50, 60, 70, sometimes I go up to 80 milligrams a day. Now, um, the reason this SSRIs, serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, you know, these are medications like Paxil, Zoloft, Prozac. The reason they are so much more used than the old tricyclic is because they have so much less side effect. Cardiac side effect is much less. Uh, anticholinergic side effect, even though it's nice that it inhibits sweating in the other person, it can also inhibit you know, urination in old men. <laughs> That's not very good. Also, static hypotension, you know, when somebody just suddenly stands up, you know, feel dizzy. Well, those are with tricyclic antidepressant, not with these. Um, with SSRI, the main side effect is sexual dysfunction. But if you don't ask that, they don't tell you. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but it's, it, uh, and, and sometimes weight gain, but that's only sometimes. Um, so it's much easier to use. Once again, Paxil, 10, anxiety, 20, depression, 40 to 80, obsessive compulsive. People who wash their hands like 50 times a day and their hand dermatitis doesn't get better. Um, you know, so you can have at least three possibilities of pretty safe agent. One, titrate doxepine in low dose. Two, use Buspa. Three, use Paxil in low dose. Um, how about um, Alprazolam, you know, Alprazolam is uh, the old Xanax. That's benzodiazepine. If, you know, yes, there is concern about addiction if you use it long term, but short term, it works quick. And it comes as 0.25 milligrams that you can even break it in half. So if you're really nervous about using it, start with 0.125 milligrams, which is half of the 0.25 milligrams. Even if you give it to little old man or little old lady, I can guarantee nothing's gonna happen. <laughs> and then you can kind of titrate from there. It's usually about three times a day, and you just have to titrate the dose. Now titration is what really makes it possible for people who are not familiar with either this medication or any other treatment to gain experience. Because if you feel nervous because you haven't done it before, you can either not do it, <laughs> or you can say, well, I'm just gonna do itsy bitsy dose and tell the patient, you know, well, Dr. Ku told me about this thing called expectation management, so let me do that. You know, here, 0.25 milligrams of alprazolam, break it in half, don't expect anything. <laughs> Take it three times a day, if you feel nothing better, fine. We're going to go start from there. You can either do that with me, or you can go see a psychiatrist. I'm sure they're all going to do that with you. <laughs> so you can gradually go up, and lo and behold, if you titrate, sooner or later you get to the point where people are much relieved of their anxiety, you know, stress, you know, um, and yet they are tolerating it fine. Um, Depression. Now, sometimes we see people with you know, serious depression picking on their face. Or uh, this is an unfortunate case of somebody who had a stroke and lost the use of the left arm. And he got so depressed, he used the right arm and started you know, digging. Um, and uh, this is something called butterfly sign. In the shape of a wing of a butterfly, you see sparing. Why? Because you can't reach there. <laughs> you know, the real skin disease don't care if you can reach it or not. <laughs> you know, so if you see that butterfly inside, there's a strong suggestion that this may be self-induced and may be possibly psychogenic, although doesn't. And this is what happens to this, the first patient after treatment with doxepin. Um, now, this I did use antidepressant dose, which is about 100 milligrams a day. You don't have to use tricyclics because tricyclics do have, you know, uh, more side effects like, you know, cardiac, you know, dryness and so forth. 
it's, if somebody's depressed, it is much easier to use things like Paxil at 20 milligrams because then you don't have to titrate. The old child cycle, you have to start low and gradually go up to about 100 milligrams a day for Elavil or Doxapin. Almost no psychiatrists do that today. You know, they just go to SSRIs. But um, SSRIs, meaning like Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft. Oh, but by the way, another reason I like Paxil is because Paxil is more relaxing. Um, Prozac is sometimes activating. You know, when people take Prozac, there are small but significant proportion of those people who actually become antsy and, you know, like a wired up in the first couple of weeks. We don't need that. In dermatology, we have more stress. We need something that calm people down. Zoloft is pretty good, but Zoloft doesn't either activate or relax. I like something that relaxes a little bit. You know, that, that's the reason for my preference for Paxil. Now, I said use of long term. If you use, uh, I mean short term, maybe a couple of months. If you do need it to use the Paxil or any SSRI for long term, then it's good to get a psych consult. Uh, when they and then make sure that they don't abruptly stop those medications. If they abruptly stop medications like Paxil or Zoloft or, Pro, um, or Prozac, uh, there is a, a serotonin syndrome where people feel really lousy. It's not dangerous, but it's unpleasant. You know, so it's good, good to taper it off. Um, and this is uh, the second patient. Interesting enough, um, this patient was also treated with doxepin at 100 milligrams and recovered from depression. When they recover from depression, they cannot dig their skin like they used to because it hurts too much. There is a theory that when people are depressed, it's like they're really stressed out. You know, so endorphins, your own body's you know, opiate like material actually make you indifferent to pain. But when you're not depressed, the endorphin is not there. So it's too painful to dig into your skin, so they stop digging. So the uh, th last thing about doxepine usage is that you can check serum doxepine level. You know, um, this is very useful not just when you're using it um, you know, for psychoderm case, but even for cases of chronic itching or chronic urticaria. You know, you cannot check the blood level of Benadryl or Atherax, which is hydroxyzine, but you can check the blood level of doxepin. But you have to know to write it in. On, on the lab sheet, you just write serum doxepin level. And then you get two things, doxepin and no doxepin, which is active, you know, uh, uh, metabolite but still active. And their usual range, like 40 to 100 or 40 to 300 or something like that, depending on the lab. So if it's within the range, then it's therapeutic range. Now that therapeutic range is actually for depression, but it's useful for us because when somebody has chronic urticaria or, or somebody's just having itching of unknown ideology and they say, I failed everything. And I say, did you use doxepin? And they say, yeah, I failed doxepin. How much did you use? 25. Well, one thing is that um, if I gave everybody in this room same dose of doxepin right now and then Wait at least 12 hours because you're supposed to take 12 blood level. So after 12 hours, I would easily find 20-fold difference, 20 times difference in blood level of toxapine among people who took the same dose. And that's typical tricyclic. So sometimes you just have to titrate the dose. So if, if uh, doxepine has 256 times the affinity for histamine receptor as compared to Benadryl, about 60 times the affinity as compared to hydroxyzine. It's the most powerful antihistamine we have. You know, so not just for psychoderm cases, but people with chronic itching, people with chronic urticaria. If I titrate doxepin carefully, and then if I get to very high dose level, like 100 milligrams, you know, check the true blood level to make sure you know, this patient is not getting too much. Lo and behold, sooner or later, you get to the point where even urticaria and chronic itching disappear. Um, so paroxetine, I'm gonna actually kind of skip a few of these because I wanna get to psychosis. You know, now, if you are not that into psychology, in your, but um, even people who are least psychologically minded has to face delusional patients. So let me spend the rest of the time talking about how to deal with these people because one of these patients can wreck your schedule. <laughs> I think you know that. You know, so delusions of parastosis is only one um, 
um, manifestation, there is a term called monosymptomatic hypochondriacal psychosis, more often used in Europe than the United States. And I think this is a very you know, um, appropriate term. Monosymptomatic because these people complain about one thing, like parasites or foreign material that they have to dig out or you know, losing hair um, when they are not losing hair. Um, or body dysmorphic reaction, they think they're ugly when they're not ugly. Well, that's very different than schizophrenia. You know, schizophrenic patients are multi-deficit you know, condition. So schizophrenic patients not only have some crazy idea, but they're hearing things, seeing things, you know, they're laughing at funeral, you know, they have inappropriate affect, losing social skills. But the people like delusions of parastosis, they might be perfectly appropriate, and usually they are. Until they start talking about parasites, then they're totally uh, uh, somewhere. Um, you know, so delusions of parastosis, delusions of dysmorphosis, which is the extreme delusional end of body dysmorphic disorder, delusions of bromosis. This is a rare patient who say they have bad smell and nobody else can smell. You know, but there are all kinds of delusions. The type of delusion is only limited by people's imagination and creativity. Um, so what do we do with this? A, you know, a lady came in and plopped this on my desk and said, these are parasites. And I looked in and I said, ma'am, I only see water. She looked at me and said, of course you only see water. These parasites are invisible. <laughs> Now, one thing that you know, but I just have to remind you, delusion means a fixed ideation that is impervious to rational you know, discussion. So don't try to talk anybody out of their delusion if they are truly delusional. Now, in all fairness, not everybody who looks delusional are delusional. You know, um, I don't want to be too nitpicking, but there, there is a whole spectrum from sanity on one end to total craziness on the other end. And in between, there's things called overvalued ideas. And then if people become even more mentally fixated, it becomes delusionoid ideation. And then finally, delusion. You know, so what, you know, I'm not surprised in your practice if you really become you know, good at this. You say, okay, this person is on the way to becoming crazy. 80% <laughs> crazy, but not 100% crazy yet. <laughs> You know, so um, so it, it is not a black and white process. But if they are 100% delusional, don't try to talk them out of it. You know, by definition, you cannot do that. You know, it, it's like catch 22. If you could do that, that wasn't delusional in the first place. <laughs> now, so what do you do with these people? Well, eventually, you want to have them take pimozide or rap, which is the um, the gold standard for the last couple of decades of. Uh, antipsychotic that are effective against delusions of parastosis, morgallons, or, or other types of encapsulated delusional system. Encapsulated because it's like a craziness in a capsule. And, and um, there are other encapsulated delusional system outside of dermatology, such as delusions of jealousy. You know, some spouse totally convinced that you know their wife or husbands are cheating on them. Paranoia of the elderly. You know, when people become old, they start to become paranoid. You know, my kids are all waiting for me to die. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the, and, and traditionally, those conditions were thought to be resistant to antipsychotic medications like Thorazine, Haldol, but Pimozide turned out to be very effective for encapsulated delusional system. You know, so uh, when psychiatrists in, in England discovered this, and they were talking about it in their lunch, you know, and they say, oh, delusions of jealousy, this agent seems to work when all the others fail. Then there was a dermatologist by the name of Alistair, I'm sorry, uh, there were a bunch of dermatologists, you know, who were eating, you know, in, in the next table. And they say, really? We got plenty of those conditions. <laughs> you know, so that's how we discovered Pimozide. Now, uh, the, uh, first I'm going to tell you how to use it, and then I'm going to tell you how to get the patient on Pimozide, which is a bigger problem. The use of it is simple. All of you probably heard about Haldo and probably have some experience. Pimozide and Haldo is almost identical, except that the Haldo doesn't work for this condition very well, but Pimozide does. 
the chemically speaking, the difference between Hado and pivonzide is only one methyl group. Side effect profile almost identical. Um, Pimozide, start with one milligram. If you feel nervous, um, or if the patient feels nervous, or if both of you feel nervous, <laughs> break it in half. <laughs> start with 0.5 milligrams a day. Now, do you take it in the morning or do you take it at night? Most of the time, it makes no difference. Rare people become a little sleepy, then take it at night. Rare people become activated, then take it in the morning, because it, it, otherwise, if you take it at night, you might have difficulty sleeping at night. You know, so start with half a milligram, go to one milligram, one and a half, two, two and a half, three. By the time you hit three milligrams, most people would have great response. They come in and, and they don't bombard you with all these stories about how these parasites date and mate and fly out of their skin. You know, but they're much more calm, much more you know, enjoy, able to enjoy life. And, and they say, you know, parasites are not bothering me anymore. Or they're becoming less and less. I think they're dying off. Now, do they ever say, oh no, you know what, I'm sorry, I didn't have parasite in the first place? No. It doesn't work for that, you know, that, but it does greatly work for the formication, the crawling biting sensation. And amazingly, when crawling and biting sensation go down, then delusion go down, ideation go down. And eventually what happens, eventually if you go up to like three milligrams, the most I have gone up is five. But three is usually adequate. When people begin to experience great relief, much less bothered by these sensations, and the intensity of the ideation goes down, much less agitated, maintain that for a couple months, two, three months. And then don't cut it off. Gradually, gradually go down by, let's say, half a, you know, you can reverse the process. You know, you can go down by maybe one milligram every, you know, month or something like that. Most young people, I can co completely take it off and they don't seem to have any recurrence. Some elderly people, um, delusional parasitosis is either younger group that are equal in sex ratio and oftentimes kind of a drug users or people who are marginal and the bigger older group who are practically all women, older women. In the older group, sometimes I do have to maintain like half a milligram or one milligram, very low dose for long term. Now, um, stiffness and restlessness, that is the major side effect. It's called extrapyramidal side effect or pseudo-Parkinsonian side effect, just like with Haldol. Very easy to control with Benadryl. Now, psychiatrists like to use cogentin, one or two milligrams up to four times a day. Benadryl is easier for us. You know, just um, 20, um, 25 of Benadryl up to four times a day and takes care of the stiffness and restlessness very easily. In fact, you can even go up on the dose as long as they know to take Benadryl and warn them about the sedative effect of the Benadryl. Now, um, how do you get, you know, get them to take this? Oh, oh, one thing, do you do EKG? American Psychiatric Association said, <clears throat> if you don't use as, you know, 10 milligrams, and we don't, five is about as high as we go, three is usually good enough. And if you don't have elderly patients, however you define elderly, and if they don't have cardiac rhythm problem, then you don't have to do EKG, I do it anyway. You know, because patients appreciate it. You know, um, they feel like I'm taking. You know, they take it as I'm taking them very seriously. Now, how do you get them to take this? Well, that's the challenge. You know, but first of all, when you see these patients, do not put pressure on yourself that oh, before this interaction is over, I have to talk about pimozide or resveratrol, which is one of the newer medications. Um, don't put that kind of pressure on yourself. Rapport, therapeutic rapport is more important than what medication you write. If you don't have trust and rapport, then whatever you write is not gonna get filled anyway. Um, so secondly, you know, when I walk into this room and as soon as I realize this is a delusional patient, I put the biggest smile on my face <laughs> and I make my eyes shine you know, it's almost like I'm meeting my Hollywood star, you know, favorite Hollywood star kind of thing. 
And, and the reason is that a lot of times these patients are already kind of pissed at healthcare professionals before they come see me because they say, oh, they, they thought I was crazy, they didn't, you know, pay attention to me, they dismissed me. You know, so it's, it's, it's very important, you know, if, uh, to act, you know, in a way that makes them feel like they're taken seriously. You know, acting doesn't cost you any time, but it does win you a lot of points. You know, let them talk a little bit, like, well, what brought you here? And they say, well, I, I slept in this dirty sleeping bag, and I know I got it from that. Don't let them talk for too long. You know, after about two, three minutes, move in. Make it structured. Question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Why? Because you need to maintain control. People who are delusional, more crazy up here, they lose you know, social, um, uh, what do you call it, you know, courtesy and all that. So they could eat up your whole afternoon and they still won't be happy. You have to maintain control. When I see delusional patients, Unlike any other patient I see, the most important thing is for me to maintain my sanity. Whether I can help this patient or not is secondary. Because if I don't maintain my sanity and my schedule get out of whack, and if I have a riot in my waiting room, you know, I can't help this person anyway. You know, and, and then, um, how, you know, so rapport is the most important thing. You know, one smile, you know, bright, bright eye, bushy tail. And, and, and control, you know, but look like you're interested all the time. If, and then if they said, you know, I know, you know, I have parasites. Here, parasite right here. Can you biopsy for me? You know, don't be afraid to look at their skin. You know, for us, it only takes like two minutes to look at their entire skin. If they ask for biopsy, don't fight them. I say, fine, I'd be happy to do biopsy, but on two conditions. One. You have to pick where it is, because I'm not going to keep doing this for you. So you better be right the first time. You know, here, a pen. Put a dot where you are absolutely certain you have parasites. Second, if the parasite is not there and it's negative, you have to agree, you know, to, to be more open-minded. Because there are other conditions that can make you feel like you're a parasite, but you might not. Now, once again, I said people are not totally crazy or sane. Most people are in the middle. Now, once in a while, there are people who are totally crazy and paranoid and hostile. I mean, those, then I say, okay, this person is hopeless. Even for me, it's hopeless. Then I just want to, to part in peace. But most people are somewhere in the middle. So, so I like to try to, to encourage the saner side and, and shrink the crazier side. You know, so they put dot right here, right here, parasite or fibers or whatever. You know, so, so I do a biopsy. So what happens? One of three things happens. Sometimes they call and they find out it's negative. I never see them again. And that's too bad. Now, the second thing is that, you know, they might come and take the medicine and get better. And third is, they might come back, but not really, you know, clear, but, you know, want to take the medicine, but they at least appreciate your interaction. If they come back, they appreciate your support, but they don't agree to take this medication or any other medication, but every time they come, you know, they, they appreciate your, you know, interest. Is it good to keep seeing them like that? You know, am I doing the right thing? Yes, you are. There's a big difference between psychiatry and non-psychiatric medicine. In psychiatry, we don't always have a magic bullet. You know, so in psychiatry, we know that sometimes we are the medicine. You know, even if the patient doesn't want to take Pemozide or anything else, if they are comforted by seeing you, that's perfectly legitimate medicine. But now, if eventually, um, if they do come to you know, trust you, you know, that you, you know, see you differently than other providers they are pissed at, then how do you, you know, talk about this? Empirical and, you know, um, agnostic and pragmatic approach. Agnostic means I don't know. Pragmatic means let's try it. It's trial and error. You know, so I say, you know, Mr. Jones or Mrs. Jones, I've been, we've been dealing with this for a while, but we haven't really seen, you know, you know, the, you know, what is causing it. But there is a medication that is very helpful for this condition if you're willing to try it. And, and then the, the, the biggest advantage of Pimozide or ORAP is not just it works, 
but its main indication is Tourette syndrome. It's, it's, you know, in, um, in the United States, its main indication is not psychosis, it's Tourette syndrome. You know, so I tell the patient, this is the medication used by neurologists for Tourette syndrome. Do you know what Tourette syndrome is? Sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. If they say no, I say it's problem with ticks. And then sometimes they get very excited and say, yeah, I got ticks. I got ticks. Give it to me. I got ticks. Well, unfortunately, I have to tell them what kind of tick I'm talking about. Then they feel kind of discouraged, you know, dispirited. And they say, you know, it's also used for another condition that you don't have. I don't want you to misunderstand. You don't have this other condition. I say, fine, what is it? You don't have schizophrenia. And of course they say, yeah, I, I know, of course I know, I don't have schizophrenia. That allowed me to write in my note, the patient was informed, it is used for Tourette's and schizophrenia, so they cannot get back, you know, complain to you later that you didn't tell me this is also a psych medication. They don't mind as long as, you know, you say you don't have it because they don't have schizophrenia. That's absolutely correct statement. They have some other form of psychosis. You know, so, and then start with low, gradually go up. If, if, if they show great response, then don't get too carried away and say, oh wow, I'm glad you got all better. By the way, you didn't have any parasite in the first place. Don't take the risk. Um, just say, yes, I'm happy for you. And I'm, I'm really glad, I'm really glad. And, and, and also, don't stop the medicine right away. You know, maintain it for a couple months, and then gradually taper it off. And some of these people, when they recover, they're going to be like the most grateful patient you have ever seen. And you know, for good reason. Because if you didn't reach out and try to treat them, nobody else would. They wouldn't go see a psychiatrist. And if they go, do go see a psychiatrist, lo and behold, psychiatrists have never seen these cases. So they probably will botch it up. And, you know, and, um, and they would have been you know, hermit with ruined life um, if, if they weren't treated. Um, so, just a few other things that I, I want to cover, um, but I'm almost out of time. I have 15 minutes. Obsessive compulsive disorder, trichotillomania, you know, compulsive hand washing, uh, people who pick on themselves. And this is trichotillomania, of course. Now, um, if you want to see obsessive compulsive disorder, you can see it. PET scan, positive emission tomography. Um, you see this, this is the people with obsessive compulsive disorder, these are people with you know, normal, you know, who doesn't have obsessive compulsive disorder. See this bright red color here in the frontal lobe right here, as compared to nothing there. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder, hyperactive frontal lobe. And that actually improves whether the patient is successfully treated with medication or even behavioral therapy. You know, the amazing thing about psychiatry today is if you want to see schizophrenia, if you want to see depression, if you want to see obsessive compulsive disorder, you can see it. Brain imaging can easily show any of those. The only thing that we cannot see is personality disorder, like borderline. But, uh, so psychiatry and dermatology is getting very similar. They're, become, they're both visible. Now, Paxil, um, 10 or 20 is not good enough, but it's good to start with that. You might have to go up to more like 40 to 80. Secondly, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, unlike delusion, patients classically know that they're, what they're doing is not good. They have more insight. It's like somebody who said, you know, I'm not supposed to be picking at my acne, but I can't help it. I hate myself doing that, but I can't help it. And then I say, why can't you help it? Didn't you try to stop? They typically say, yes, I tried to stop, but there's two reasons that they typically can't stop. One is compulsive urge, the thing I talked about before. If they're not doing it, they become more and more very peculiar, ill at ease kind of feeling. And finally, they give up and just start doing it. Second is that the behavior is so automatic. You know, they just do it when they're not thinking. So two things are needed besides patient's motivation. One, vigilance. Know where your hands are. Um, sometimes there are you know, cheap watch you can buy in Walgreens that you, know, you can um, chime it. So every hour it goes ding. And then I tell them, when it goes ding, look at where your hands are. And lo and behold, sometimes they find themselves doing it. And then if you find yourself doing it, stop doing it. Take out a notebook. Write down, you know, the time, the date, but more importantly, 
what triggered that? Was there anything? Or was it just boredom? You know, um, they can always think of something. But sometimes when, when they catch themselves, they can actually begin to make some pattern out of it. Like every time I think of my mother-in-law, I pick my husband, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so um, even if they can't think of anything, this interrupts their behavior. If you interrupt behavior many times, then sometimes behavior going to extinction. Well, that doesn't always happen, unfortunately. And if they're motivated, if they're vigilant, and they know where their hands are, then the last piece that might be helpful from you is something like Paxil, Zoloft, Prozac, Celexa. You know, Paxil is, as I said, typically 40 to 80 a day. Um, if they get too sedated at the dose, then you might want to use Zoloft and just look up your anti-obsessive compulsive dose and so forth. And then you have to wait a um, couple weeks before it kicks in. Just like antidepressant. Antidepressant, as you know, doesn't work the moment you take it. It takes about three or four weeks before it kicks in. But with the, those three things, motivation, vigilance, and the, and the medication, they could succeed. Uh, cutaneous sensory disorder. This is when patients come in and they say, I got a burning sensation in my bud. And then you look at their bud and there's nothing there. And, and they say, by the way, dermatologists gave me all this. And you say, Lotrizone, Lotrimine, <laughs> cream, topical steroid. Uh, well, uh, this is a patient, tremendous itching that comes like an attack. Put on doxepine, totally disappear. He was sent to me as a psychoderm case, but I couldn't find anything wrong with him, except the fact that he got this tremendous attack of itching. You know, there are, there are uh, many reports, usually not in the literature, but this one happened to be in archives of dermatology, patient having focal stroke and immediately developing unilateral contralateral pruritus. You know, uh, essentially, there's a, you know, we should recognize that itching on the skin doesn't have to be from the skin. It could be anywhere in the nervous system. You know, if you're a neurologist, you're well aware of sensory stroke. Somebody has a minor stroke, you know, they, their movement is okay, you know, they're not weak, but they have sensation in some part of the skin. You know, so, uh, it, you know, there is a phenomenon called sensual pruritus, sensual nervous system. Uh, induced pruritus. So what do you do with this condition where you see nothing on the skin, million dollar workup is negative? Well, if it's itch, doxepin in, you know, in titrated dose is most helpful. If the patient cannot tolerate doxepin, trimipramine or somanto, uh, it also has tremendous antihistamine effect, but it's hardly known in dermatology. Uh, if it's pain, including burning sensation, I mean triptyline or Aravel in lower dose from about 10 to 50 milligrams at bedtime is the classic analgesic dose. But amitriptyline or Aravel has the most side effect of tricyclic dry mouth, uh, cardiac side effects, sorry, um, you know, uh, constipation, <laughs> difficulty urination if they have a big prostate. So desipramine, which is a um, metabolite of uh, amitriptyline, much better tolerated, and also have analgesic effect. In, um, and, well, I think I'm almost out of time. So, uh, no triptyline is also used if you're not quite sure about using this agent in low dose. I mean, uh, you could always refer them to a neurologist. Neurologists deal with chronic pain all the time. So, I said, this is dysesthesia, cutaneous pain. Now, um, I see I have eight minutes left. Anybody have any question? Yes. Just a couple questions. Um, uh, you said that you would use a liquid uh, doxepin for sensitive patients. How, how would you describe, what would you describe a sensitive patient as? Yes, sensitive patients are people who get zonked at 10 milligrams okay. at that time. Okay. And liquid doxepin, you know, the brand name is Sinequan, is 10 milligrams per cc. And it comes with a little dropper. So you can actually do as little as 0.1 cc, which is only one milligram, mm -hmm. and then gradually work yourself up. If the patients say, gee, but you know, I pay for this doxepin, I don't want to waste it, then they can actually open the capsule, stir it into like grapefruit juice, mm -hmm. and then just drink like, you know, like a fourth of a cup. Mm -hmm. And that way it's only 2.5 milligrams. Okay. So, 
Thank you. The other question was, um, would uh, doxepin be effective for notalgia parasthetica? Uh, very good question. Would doxepin be effective for notalgia parasthetica? It could be, because doxepin is like nortriptyline, desipramine, elevil. All of these tricyclic antidepressants are known to have significant uh, analgesic effect. In fact, some of you might have had like a shoulder pain or something like that and were given nortriptyline. You know, it, it is an uh, anti pain medication with no addictive potential, but you just have to take it for a long time to see the benefit. So doxepin can be used that way too. Um, yes? Two questions. One, if you suspect somebody of having a central stroke, essentially, uh, would you refer them to neurology? to have evaluation? Yes, uh, you're talking about the central pruritus. In fact, first thing I would like to do with those people is to have a neurologist take a look. Because even multiple sclerosis you know, can present with nothing but skin sensations. I mean, in a multiple sclerosis, classically people say unilateral blindness. Well, that's very dramatic. But fully one third of the case shows nothing except skin sensation. And, and it might not be dermatonal. You know, so, so yes, I, that's a definitely good idea, neurology consult. And do you ever use Abilify for delusions? Um, uh, do I use what? Abilify. Abilify. Well, Abilify is one of the antipsychotic agents, uh, probably with less concern about tardive dyskinesia. Uh, the, the problem with, I don't use that much. I do have one patient on delusions of paracetosis you know, who started having a little bit of a movement around here. So I, I switch over from uh, you know, Pimozide or ORAP to Abilify and, and she's essentially fine. Um, in fact, we just took her off because she's essentially cured. But the, the problem with any of these medications is that uh, other than Pimozide or ORAP, all of them, the official indication is psychosis. And sometimes these patients ask the pharmacist, what is this for? And then the pharmacist says, say, oh, it's for craziness. Then the patient's pissed. You know, whereas, you know, if it's Pimozide or ORAP, they often don't know, you know, the pharmacists don't know what it is because they don't, they don't fill the prescription too often. So they just quickly look at a PDR and say, oh, it's for Torres syndrome. And then that's fine with the patient. Thank you. Great. Yes. Uh, yes, sir. I just want to mention a, a colleague of mine had a, a patient with a delusions of parasitosis, which she unfortunately developed after finding um, a pair of women's underwear in her husband's car, and it wasn't hers. Uh, it turned out that she was taking Adderall XR, and instead of taking it once a day, she was taking it three times a day, and she was developing the, the uh, parasitosis because of the, the amphetamine. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the, one important differential is people who develop parasitosis uh, because of substance abuse. Cocaine bug, you know, is most famous. When people abuse cocaine, they feel like they have bugs crawling on their skin. It was first described by Sigmund Freud because he was a cocaine user, and he described his experience in a medical journal. But anyway... Um, you know, so amphetamine, um, cocaine, you know, crack, you know, th those people unfortunately are in double jeopardy. One, if they don't stop the substance abuse, they probably won't get better. Two, because Pimozide um, is unique in that it does have reasonably powerful anti-opiate effect. If they are hooked on things like opiate, not amphetamine but opiate, there's a theoretical concern about using Pimozide, whether that might put people on opiate withdrawal. But, but, but if they are substance abuser, um, the best you can tell them is kick the habit because you know, I don't think medication is going to be the help. Yes. Oh, okay, yeah, whoever. Um, since you brought up opiates, um, have you ever seen or have you any experience with the use of Narcan for itch? Uh, use of what, I'm sorry? Narcan or? Narcan. Um, you know, naloxone, naltrexone, mm -hmm. uh, they could sometimes help each of unknown ideology, which is thought to be opiate, endogenous opiate mediator. Uh, naltrexone, you know, which used to be go by the brand name of Chexan, that's an oral form. And um, it doesn't always work, but by the time we think of that, we're kind of out of ideas anyway. And you know, as long as they are not addicted to opiates, it's very safe. They might have diarrhea or other stomach complaint because of the opiate receptor in the stomach, but outside of that, it's pretty safe, so it's worth a try. Oral form, naltrexone is so much easier to try. Yes? 
Um, what are your thoughts on the, I believe it's called Magellan syndrome, where yes. the threads are coming out of the skin? Yeah, you know, I, I like to be open-minded and think that there is something we don't know, but I'm a little bit pessimistic. And the reason is, Magellan's syndrome, which means you know stuff coming out of your skin, whether it's you know parasite or, or fiber, Magellan syndrome is a term that was never officially defined by medical, you know, professional body. You know, so anything that's coming out of the skin, fly out of the skin, is theoretically Magellan's. Um, CDC is spending millions of taxpayers' dollars working with you know Kaiser to try to find the organic cause for Magellan syndrome. But the reason I'm a little bit pessimistic is these people often have a clear idea on what's, you know, what's doing this. You know, whereas people who truly don't have anything, you know, I mean, truly have a miserable condition that nobody knows what it is, we see them all the time at UCSF on Wednesday ground rounds. You know, they are very miserable and say, you know, well, what's happening? I don't know. You know, what, what's, what do you think is causing this? I have no idea. Help me. But Mugellan syndrome patients, they often know what it is, what color it is, where does it migrate, this fiber moved from here to here. You know, so I'm kind of a pessimistic that we're going to find organic cause. You mentioned one of the most important things with patients like this is rapport. How do you approach a patient to find out whether they're using substances that might be causing it? Yeah, um, yeah you know, um, sometimes... Um, you have to be a little careful. You, you might not be able to just ask, do you use cocaine, do you use you know, recreational drugs, because they might take it defensively. You know, so you have to use clinical judgment. You know, uh, when you're dealing with patients and using your empathy, you know, there are instances where you want to ask the question, but the patient doesn't trust you enough, that maybe this is not a good time to ask until some report is developed. Uh, the other, other way to make them less defensive is sort of ask in the context of general medical inquiry. You know, for example, you know, are you eating okay? Are you sleeping okay? Are you on any medication? Do you use any recreational drug with like a poker face? You know, that, that way they don't take it offense, you know, you know they might be fine with it. You know, so either you know, wait for the right moment or do it in a more pro, you know, prosaic way. I mean, just, there are some rare patients, you know, uh, just as an analogy, there are some people who are def, you know, depressed, but they're very defensive about admitting depression. You know, so if you say, are you depressed? They say, no, I'm not depressed. And then all the tear comes out. You know, so, um, so sometimes I say, do you have difficulty sleeping? Then they say, yeah, I have difficulty sleeping, I can't sleep, you know, I wake up in the middle, I wake up early in the morning. They don't realize that that's a you know, physical manifestation of depression. You know, so sometimes an you know, indirect way of asking questions might be more effective. Look like I'm out of time. So anyway, thank you very much for your attention.